Pastor Ed Taylor says, expect to be hated when you take a stand for Jesus. There's not too many people left on the earth that are taking a righteous stand for righteous things, except for Christians. There aren't too many people standing up for the unborn, except for believers. There's not too many people standing up for right and wrong, black and white, except for believers. It's, it's wearied some of you so much that you think not standing up for right and wrong is right, the best choice for you because you're just tired of people hating on you. And that now puts us in conflict with the reality that when you live for Jesus Christ, you will be hated, truly looked down upon. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. It's time for Abounding Grace with our pastor and teacher, Ed Taylor. We'll be continuing a study in John's Gospel today, so find your place in chapter 15 as we set the table for our discussion. Jesus warned us that just as the world hated him, his followers would be hated too. And you don't have to look long and hard to see the truth of that statement lived right out before our very eyes. In today's message, Pastor Ed says the response to light is either love or hate. It's a choice each of us must make. Take your Bibles, open them to John's Gospel, chapter 15. John chapter 15 is where we are. We're finishing off the chapter today. We're finishing off the chapter that Jesus has been preparing his apostles and disciples for his soon crucifixion. These are some of the last words he's going to share with them before they take him, arrest him, beat tr- a false trial, beat him, hang him, and bury him. It will be the three most difficult days of their lives. And yet they don't quite know that yet. They, they don't really understand how bad it's going to be. And let me just say I'm thankful that God doesn't reveal the future for us. And show us how bad things will be or how bad things could be. But instead, he meets us where we are and he gives us the grace to persevere in the moment. And you can trust God for that. You don't need to be filled with worry. We don't need to be, be so anxious about the future. But rather take the posture of trust and faith. And that's where Jesus is preparing them. Remember in chapter 14, in verse 1 is where he started. Where he, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He's building up their faith. And then he talks about how he's the only way in verse 6. And then in verse 10, he says, don't you believe, this is chapter 14, that I'm with, I've, I've been with you so long that have you not known me? He who has seen me, this is verse 9, has seen the Father. So now how can you say, show us the Father? In verse 12, he said, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, The works I do, he will do also. He says in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Then he promised the Holy Spirit, the abiding presence of God to dwell in them. And we took a pause, remember, to look at all the spiritual gifts and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the comfort of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the power of the Holy Spirit. And then before we end chapter 15 today, he's going to remind us of the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
And then he opened up in chapter 15 with this beautiful picture. He says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. You are already clean, verse 3, because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. One of the big mistakes that I see believers make all the time in their relationship with God is they relate to God on a works-based relationship. Here's a picture that might help. Some believers, many believers, view their relationship with God like that of a factory. Like you're in a factory. And you know why we have factories? We have factories to produce things, to build things. We have a factory where we have an assembly line and we have all the pieces and everybody has a role and a position and all they're supposed to do is do their job. Just do your part. Do your part. Make sure you put that on there and make sure you twist that and make sure you package that and make sure that you're the quality control and factories are important and they're great at producing things. And if you view your relationship with God as a means of just work and what you have to do for him, then this picture of a factory comes into play. Because there becomes a focus and an overemphasis on production, on work, on perfection, that assembly line mentality. And of course, that spills over into our view of God. Because if we relate to God of what I have to do and all the works I need to produce, and I'm never doing enough, and I could never do enough to please God, then, then, then you view, if you view life like a factory, then what does God become? Like a factory manager. Like all he really cares about is you, what you do. And if you don't do well, then he doesn't care about you and doesn't love you anymore. And if you do super well, then he loves you more than anyone else. And our view of God gets all skewed. And when our view of God gets skewed, then then we really aren't living in a relationship with him that pleases him at all. Because God is not like a factory manager at all. He's, He's not just interested in what's being done. He's not just interested in how much you do or how fast you do it or how efficient you do it and how productive you are. That's nowhere to be found in the scriptures. God is not a factory manager looking for production. No, instead, what's the picture? He's a gardener who takes care of his garden. He takes care of you. And the more that he takes care of you, the more fruit that comes through your life. Like God loves you. He's not over you, making you, pushing you, driving you. He's with you. And he's weeding out things in your life and he's pruning things and he's watering and he's fertilizing and and he's taking care of you like a gardener would their garden. You know, in in our front room area, there's a few windows in the sliding glass window and next to one of the windows there, Marie put a plant. And that's her plant. We're not really supposed to do anything except look at it. It's just her plant. She's taking care of it. She has nursed it from something really small to something big, and it just sits there. And on occasion, you know, and the evening comes, uh, I'll go around and I'll close the blinds and I'll start pulling all the blinds and, and I'll go to the window where she put this uh, plant and I'll close the blind and I hear, don't close the blinds. And I said, why not? She says, don't close the blinds. I'm going to close the blinds. Oh, I want to close the blinds. No, you know, and, and what she's saying is like, why not? And I, she would say, well, because when the sun comes up in the morning, that plant needs the sun, and well, I'll just open it in the morning. She said, no, you won't. You'll forget. And I'm like, I know, I know, because I don't really care about your plant like you do. That's the truth. But the plant doesn't do anything. 
It's not there by the window going, oh, I need to grow for Marie. I need to make this out. Oh, here comes Ed. No, Ed, no. It's not doing that at all. It's just sitting there in a pot with the dirt and whatever else she puts in there, and she occasionally waters it. And with the blinds cut at the right one, the sun comes in, nourishes the plant. And what does the plant do? It grows. It does what it's supposed to do. It grows. It's gotten bigger. The leaves are there. And it's, pretty, it's a very pretty plant. It's very different than when it started. But it's not with all this energy and effort, and it's not telling us what to do. It's just doing what it was made to do. Th- that's the picture of abiding. The gardener takes care of you. And as the gardener takes care of you, you do what God's made you to do. He's not looking for production in your life. He's looking for fruit, for fruit. Fruit naturally occurs. As the roots of a tree goes down deep, taking the nutrients of the soil, putting it up through the trunk, into the branches, out on the edges, with the seed and how it all works, and the fruit comes, and then you are able to take the fruit and enjoy it. Fruit from your life and mine, as we've learned, is a natural process. Because if you live right now with an emphasis upon works, you know something about yourself. Others may or may not know this about you, but you do. And that is, you can never do enough to please God. I mean, you read your Bible and you're very faithful on it. And maybe you made a goal. I'm going to read my Bible for an hour. And you've been reading your Bible for an hour, but you know what happens. After a week or two, you're like, you know, but I could do an hour and a half. I'm like, man, you've been so faithful. The Lord's been blessing you, but now an hour and a half. Now, it's a different thing to say, you know, Lord, I want to give a little bit more time to you. It would be awesome. I'm enjoying my relationship with you so much. I would love to give you an hour and a half. That's fruit. The guilt of saying, well, I have to do an hour and a half. And then you look at your spouse or your kids and go, you have to do an hour and a half. And then you want to come up for testimony and go, why aren't you guys praying and reading your Bible for That's That's works. And works will lead you to burnout. Works will lead you to condemnation. Works will lead you to be upset and dissatisfied with yourself. But fruit takes place in the garden where there's peace and rest and natural beauty. And you know, believers that have a works-based relationship with God, they read their Bible. But believers that have a fruit-based relationship with God, they read their Bible too. One reads it out of obligation and one reads it out of joy. God, what do you have for me today? So important that you understand the grace of God. You know, and I don't serve in a factory. We're a part of a garden. And we don't have to do anything for God. We get to. We have the privilege of serving the Most High God, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He gets to invade every aspect of our lives. He uses us as we abide in Him. Because even this, if you have a workspace relationship with God, even the instruction to abide is taking like, okay, that's what I'll do. That's what I'm supposed to do. So I'm going to wake up and I just know I need to abide. I need to abide. And there's so much effort and so much frustration when you just instead can enjoy relationship. Let me show you what I mean in another way. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2, would you? Philippians chapter 2, it's over to the right. Because abiding is not another command of something to do, but rather it's a command of who you already are. Abiding, remember, means to stay put. It means to stay there. Don't wander around. Stay where you need to be. 
stay. I know in our backyard, when we first moved in, we started planting trees because there were no trees back there. And we would put different trees. And, and Marie would say, no, I don't want that tree there. I want you to move it over there. Okay, but we just spent a whole Saturday planting it there. But if you want it there, honey, out of love, we will move it. And we dig it up and we move it over there. She says, no, 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 I don't like it there. How about over here? I love you very much. And we'd go dig it up. And before you know it, with one of those trees, it didn't make it. Because it couldn't handle that. The trauma of hitting that root and the trauma of moving in, and it didn't make it. And we had to end up pulling, you know, and then by the time it was still this little stick, we could just pull it up right out of the ground because it didn't take root. And that's what happens with us as believers. We're not staying put. You're not going to have your roots go down deep like in Psalm 1. To be planted by the rivers of water where your roots go down deep and take up the nutrients. You know, a lot of times the Bible describes living for Jesus as a race. And that's a beautiful picture. And the living for Jesus, is in, if we looked at it as a race, it's not a 100-yard dash where we get there as fast as we can. It's a marathon, man. It's a lifetime. It's the kind of race that you run, that you go to sleep at night, and you wake up, and the first thing you think about is running the race. And you get back in the race with all kinds of opposition. You know, running the race in our lives, it, it, we don't run with the wind. We run against the wind. And there's always opposition, and there's always pushing back, and we're always tired. And as a matter of fact, I read many years ago, uh, those that run marathons, they say that, that at some point in the race, they, they come to a place where they hit the wall. And they've trained, and they've trained, and they've trained, and they, they've run this distance many, many times, but every time they race, they hit the wall. And the wall is like, man, quit now. Quit now, you're not going to make it. And your body's crying out and it's weak and you're, you're not going to make it and your body's saying, just quit now. And how many times as a believer have you come to that place where you've hit the wall and you hear the enemy saying, quit now. Quit now, you're not going to make it. I'm here to tell you, in the power of Jesus Christ, you're going to make it. You get up and run again. Yeah, you're going to run against the wind? Sure. It's going to be hard and difficult? Yes. If somebody told you becoming a believer would make life easier for you, they lied. It's a fight. It's a race. And in many ways, hey, they might have only told you half the truth. The easy part of walking with Jesus is he removes our shame and he removes our guilt and he removes our propensity to live in sin. That's good and that's great, but it's a battle. Abiding isn't just something I have to do. Abiding is what I do because I love Jesus. And here's another way of looking at it. Look at verse 12. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, he says, you guys live that life of obedience, so work out your own salvation. Now, a lot of pastors, a lot of people stop there and think that, you know, you're supposed to work for your salvation. And if you stopped here, you'd be mistaken it doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work out. It says live out your salvation. Expend some effort, some energy. If you like to write in your Bibles, you can circle the word work and also in verse 13, the word works and right next to it, energy. Yeah, living for Jesus is going to require some energy on your part. But notice, it's not your responsibility because in verse 13 it says, why are we to do this? Because God works in you. Don't miss that. God works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's God working in you. 
It's God working in you. Sometimes we forget it's God. Sometimes we think it's all up to us. It's all us. It's all our responsibility. It's not. God works in you. And if you're taking notes, notice two things. He's doing two things in you right now. Number one, he's working to give you a new will. And the idea behind that would be, if we were paraphrasing it, God works in you to give you new desires. New desires. You have new desires now. You don't think like you used to think. The Bible says that you're not even that person you used to be. Some of you have dramatic salvation stories like me. Unfortunately, I have a dramatic salvation story because of the stupidity of my sin and my tendency toward alcohol and drugs and everything that went through it. And God delivered me from that. So in a very real way, I can see in my life my wife can see, my parents when they were here could see that I'm, I am a different person than when I was not saved living for the world. But even if you don't have a dramatic salvation story, the moment you began to serve God, you became a different person. And the reason you continue to be a different person is because God works in you. And let me just say, you didn't know me as an unbeliever, and I probably didn't know much of you as an unbeliever, and I praise God for that. Why don't you just praise God today that you are saved and you are changed, that God is working in your life, that he has changed you, that you're not the same, and now God is working in you and you got all these new desires. You used to want to go party, now you want to go to Bible study. Where do you think that came from? It came from the Lord. That was a quiz. Nobody answered. Where do you think that came from? It came from God. He works in you. You're in Bible study now. Friday night, you're calling somebody that you know is lonely and you're ministering to them instead of going to the bar. Where do you think that came from? That came from the Lord. You have a deep love for your parents now. Where do you think that came from? You, you want to be a missionary. You want to be a missionary. You want to quit your job. You want to give up everything you have because you have a heart for a region of the world and you want to go. Everybody around you thinks you're crazy, but not God because he put that in your heart. You have a new business. You want to use it for the glory of God. Where do you think that came from? You have a talent where you want to see it expressed, where God gets the glory. That all came from the Lord. God's working in you right now. And not only is he giving you new desires, but it also says that he also is working in you to do. So different than the emphasis that we place upon ourselves of what we have to do for the Lord. Listen, God is doing through you. Yield to him. Trust him. He's working in you. He's working in me both to give us new desires and wants and the power to follow through. The energy, the very energy to obey comes from God and not from me or you. Now, with all that in mind, let's pick up in John 15 and close out these last few verses where Jesus reminds us of the Holy Spirit and the response to light. Love or hate is always the response to light. Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Some of you right now are being hated without a cause. And it's a horrible feeling. And yet... Jesus is the only one that ever walked on the planet earth that truly could say this. That he was a perfect man, God in human flesh, and all the hatred that came to him was literally without a cause whatsoever. Verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he'll testify of me. 
And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The world will hate you. We've learned that already. It's a difficult thing to to take. Verse 18, remember, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Your relationship with God will solicit and elicit anger and hatred from those, really, they're not hating you more than they are hating God. And because you're abiding in Christ, the same hatred that goes toward him is going to go toward you. And the church today, you know, as you think of the church at large, has a lot of hatred coming toward it because there's not too many people left on the earth that are taking a righteous stand for righteous things, except for Christians. There aren't too many people standing up for the unborn, except for believers. There's not too many people standing up for right and wrong, black and white, except for believers. It's, it's wearied some of you so much that you think not standing up for right and wrong is right, the best choice for you because you're just tired of people hating on you. I mean, isn't that, that's even a new phrase. This is, the new phrase in our society is, is this whole thing of hating. You know, they're calling things hate that really isn't hate. Like, just because you disagree with them, well, you're hating on me. No, I'm not hating on you. You're hating on me, saying I'm hating on you. And I, I, it's like, no, no, it's not. This is animosity and disdain for taking a righteous stand. True hatred. And I think there isn't any of us that really wants to be hated. I don't want to be hated. And that that's now puts us in conflict with the reality that when you live for Jesus Christ, you will be hated. Truly looked down upon. That's Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace. And Ed, before we let you go, quick question. As you just said, Christians can expect to be hated and looked down upon. It sure seems like that's been in the increase in recent years. As we face such hostility and hatred, how should we respond? Well, Larry, I think that the answer to this question is going to bring a shock to many people because I have seen the church in the last many years respond to this in a way that doesn't reflect the way that Jesus taught us. And this is what Jesus tells us, his answer directly. You have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes this sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the response is very clear. Uh, We need to be in a place where we're loving our enemies, blessing them, doing good, and praying for them. This is the position, the blessed posture and position of being a child of God in these last days. Of course, we need to expect it. We need to know standing on what is right and what is firm is going to be soundly rejected in a God-hating culture. But see, even though we live in a God-hating culture, God loves the people in this culture. And he's left us a salt and light, and may we be used in amazing ways. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Make sure you read it, memorize it, meditate on it, and let the Holy Spirit be all that 
he wants you to be as you deal with such hostility. Very good. Thanks again. This message called Love or Hate, Your Choice can be heard again at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Thank you for your support of Abounding Grace. It does make a difference. Your donation today will help us present God's Word over the radio tomorrow. We're consistently receiving wonderful reports from listeners all over the world of how God is using the Word to help them grow by God's abounding grace. You're helping to make that possible. And when you support this ministry today with a gift of $25 or more, you're invited to request a copy of Pastor Ed's book, Sure and Steady. Now, this was written to encourage those in pastoral ministry. The work of a pastor is not easy, often unpredictable, and full of challenges and discouragements. As you may know, this is Pastor Appreciation Month. So why not order a copy of Sure and Steady and give it to your pastor as a way of showing your appreciation to him? I know they'll be encouraged as they read Sure and Steady. Just call 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-30-GRACE. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but do come back next time when we'll resume Pastor Ed Taylor's study of the Gospel of John on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.